Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Unlikely Heroes. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. When I sit down to research and write a sermon introduction, I am often drawn to 19th to 20th century history and sports stories. You've probably noticed that if you've listened to a handful of my sermons. Knowing this, then you certainly would understand why I was immediately drawn to the story of one of the wildest finishes ever seen at a college football game. Uh, on November 20th, 1982, crosstown rivals the California Golden Bears and the Stanford Cardinal took the field with identical five and four records. At stake was an axe head trophy, which is awarded to the winner of this annual matchup. Also at stake was a potential bowl berth for Stanford and uh, possibly a higher draft position for their star quarterback, John Elway. Cal was ahead 19-17 to 17 late in the fourth quarter when Stanford received the ball back on their own 13-yard line. Elway then led his Stanford team down the field, uh, a shorter field, and then he, they ended up kicking a field goal, making it 20-19 to 19 Stanford with just eight seconds left to go in the game. Stanford kicked a, uh, then they kicked off, and in fact, as they kicked off, the Cal Bear play-by-play announcer, a man named uh, Joe Starkey, I think he recently retired after some 40 years in the booth, um, he said, uh, well, only a miracle can help Cal now. So there's eight seconds left, Cal receives a kickoff from Stanford, and as they're running the ball back, with only four seconds left now on the game clock. What happened became one of the most debated, analyzed, and watched plays in college football history. In fact, so much so that history and the internet simply call it the play. It's just called the play. And especially those that live up in the Bay Area, they know what the play is. So as California's returning the ball, they make a couple of lateral passes, which is already difficult to do in a football game, and Cal player Dwight Garner appeared to be tackled with no time left on the clock, causing Stanford to think the game was over. This triggered the Stanford band, cheerleaders, and administration to start walking onto the field. However, Dwight Garner was not down. Just before his knee hit the ground, he was able to get rid of the ball, lateral it to another teammate who continued to advance it. After a couple of more laterals, Cal returner Kevin Moen was able to use the Stanford band as additional blockers. <laughs> this is true, it really happened. And reached the end zone with the help of a block by the trombone player. That trombone player is now famous and uh, known. There are still t-shirts you can get on the internet, on Amazon, by the way, 
commemorating this event. You can still find videos on YouTube that show the uh, block that the Stanford player, excuse me, the, the Stanford tramp trombone player made that helped the cow guy score the touchdown. And so with that, Cal won the game 25 to 20. You know, sometimes the Christian life can leave you feeling like a California bear. Everyone in the stadium believes that you've lost the game. When in reality, you just haven't won yet. So we're concluding our series called Unlikely Heroes in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Hebrews chapter 11. Our theme verse for this series has been verse 6. It is on the keynote screen behind me and also on your sermon note handout. Let's read it out loud together one last time. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now we have learned throughout this series for the last 10 or 11 weeks that faith is simply believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. The Lord loves it when we have faith in him. And I think this is why he commends and rewards living faith. Because faith complements him by affirming what he has already said about himself and what he has already said he will do. Now, just a quick review of background for those of you maybe that have been gone or haven't been here for the whole series. Hebrews chapter 11 is written to, well, the entire letter of Hebrews actually, it's written to a group of new Christ followers that have been saved out of Judaism. They were experiencing intense persecution for their new faith in Christ. Their friends were deserting the faith, and they were considering doing the same. Now, we're only able to see half of the conversation or correspondence that's taking place here between the author of Hebrews and the audience that he's writing to. But they were probably pleading, if I could guess, based on this half of the conversation, his readers were probably pleading for some relief from the pressure-packed, high-stress circumstances they were under. Every day, getting up, worrying, am I going to live today? Am I going to be able to be here to provide for my family or to see my kids grow up because I chose to give my life to Christ? To which the author's response in Hebrews eleven six, in essence, is, if I was to paraphrase it, it seems as though the author here is saying, give up the faith. <laughs> you just started to walk by faith. You need to keep walking because you're pleasing God right now in the midst of your circumstances. It's a, to get relief from your circumstances or to walk away from Jesus would require you to stop expressing faith, which then would mean you no longer are pleasing God. 
Why would you want to quit that? I think that's what he's trying to say. So in an attempt to help them press on in the faith, the author, as we've been learning, recounts the lives of a few Old Testament heroes that the Lord used when they were facing incredible odds. And still, you probably have noticed, just as I have in my own life, that living by faith is hard. It is not easy. And there have been times, I have to admit, when I was a new believer, I wish some people would have prepared me for that a little more. But I think one of the reasons it's difficult to live by faith is that the world views it as losing. However, that sets up our big idea for today. The big idea, the sermon in one sentence. I will repeat this three to four times today, hoping that it sits in your head like a Holy Spirit hand grenade and goes off throughout the week, multiple times. Living faith enables us, excuse me, enables you to win when the world says you've lost. Living faith enables you to win when the world says you've lost. We've been on a guided tour of the Hall of Faith, and as I have worked through this series, I have envisioned every week a, sort of like a museum with vaulted ceilings and marble floors and spotlighting over each statue. And as we go through the hall, the author of Hebrews stops in front of each character in the Old Testament that he references, and we look at the statue, and he tells us the story that got them into the hall of faith. Again, maybe it's the sports fan in me dreaming about going through the NFL Hall of Fame where there's all the bronze bust and then there's the stats of the player and what he did and how many championships he won. Maybe that's what inspired me to think of it that way. But if you would, imagine with me the author as our tour guide saying, follow me, I, I have one more thing to show you. And so he walks up to a base with no statue that is near the exit door slightly illuminated by the sunlight coming in from outside that leads to the parking lot. The platform appears to be a placeholder for someone waiting to be inducted into the hall. And the tour guide says nothing once we arrive at our last stop. All he does is point to the nameplate on the base. No statue there, but just a nameplate on the base. And much to your surprise, the name isn't another hero like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Peter or Paul. Instead, it's your name that's there. It's your name that's on the base with no statue yet because it's still being made. And then the guide says, this is the place we've reserved for you. And so with that, if you would look at Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to look at the final nine verses of the chapter. The final nine verses break neatly down into three sections, which will be our main three points on your outline today, starting in verse 32. 
And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the malice of lions. They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that the author tells us, and that is sometimes our victory is in how we live. Sometimes our victory is in how we live. In this first section, the apostle briefly lists some additional believers who made headline news. He says in verse 32, Oh, time, it would fail me. In other words, you know, I could go on telling more stories and more stories, but I don't have time, and I think you get the point. In addition, he probably wanted to make sure that we don't diminish the names of these men that he's mentioned as though they're sort of honorable mention guys, like they're second team all Hall of Faithers. You know, they're not the first team guys. I think he wants to avoid us thinking that way. So he says, you know, there's Gideon, there's Barak, there's Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. The first four men that he lists are... Judges from the book of Judges, whom the Lord used to help Israel establish its foothold in the promised land. He used them after Joshua, which we learned early in this series, uh, led the initial military campaign to help start taking over strongholds in the promised land. Samuel was both Israel's last judge and their first prophet. Samuel helped God's people transition to a monarchy. And then David is mentioned because he was Israel's first godly king and its greatest king. David was chosen by and mentored by Samuel. So that's the relationship of the names that he mentions in verse 32. Next, he goes on to explain what some of these men accomplished with the Lord's help. Well, they conquered kingdoms. That refers to the judges and David. They enforced justice, probably referring to the work of the judges and David and Samuel as well. They obtained promises. This is a nod to Joshua, who got to see the promised land that God had promised to his people. Also, probably a reference to Gideon, who was promised by the Lord that he would conquer the Midianites, and the other judges who got to claim the promised land. The person that stopped the mouth of lions is not mentioned, but it's probably referring to Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6. Next, they quenched the power of fire. This describes Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into the fiery furnace but survived in Daniel chapter 3. Does anybody get all these Sunday school stories coming back to your mind? Little songs that you learned? 
They escaped the edge of the sword. Probably refers to the number of times that David was eluding Saul before he became king. And the prophet Elijah, who escaped from Jezebel after she threatened his life in 1 Kings chapter 19. The next three phrases mention strength and mightiness and defeating foreign armies again, which refers to the accomplishments of the previously mentioned judges and David. In verse 35, we're told that some women receive back their children from the dead. This is a reminder of the prophets Elijah reviving the son belonging to the widow of Zarephath and Elisha raising the Shunammite woman's son from the dead. So why is the author saying these things, just briefly rattling off these names and then these sort of miraculous events? Well, here's what I think he's getting at, if I was to boil it down and simplify it. I think what he's trying to say about faith here is that faith can activate the power of God for miracles. It can activate the power of God for miracles. The author of Hebrews is reassuring us and his readers that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And that when we express living faith in him, because he likes that, he wants to incentivize that, he rewards it, it makes us eligible for miracles to happen. Now, living faith, I want to clarify this, it doesn't guarantee a miracle. It makes us eligible. And that's because it's not like a, a, you know, a coin you just put in a vending machine. Hey, I'm going to express some living faith, Lord. I believe you can heal me of cancer. I'm healed. Doesn't work like that. You see, because it's governed by his sovereign will. It may be God's will that you not get healed by cancer, or from cancer, excuse me. Now, on the other hand, the absence of faith makes us ineligible for a miracle. We see this in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus uh, goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and it says in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, that he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. So I want to be, be careful here uh, that you hear me pro- correctly. Living faith makes us eligible for a miracle if it's God's will, But the absence of living faith definitely makes us ineligible because the Lord does not want to reward unbelief. You're not going to do that. So, here's that big idea again. Are you ready? Just in case you missed it the first time, living faith enables you to win when the world says you've lost. And one of the ways it helps is it can activate God's power for miracles. Look back at the text with me at verse... 35, I'm going to read 35 to 38. Some were tortured. This is what I call a pivot in the text. There's a a change in thought, a change in direction. Notice the contrast. He's talking about miracles in the first few verses, but then all of a sudden it goes negative. It goes uncomfortable. It goes painful. So watch. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And they were killed with the sword. And they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So here's the second truth on your outline that he's trying to convey to us, and that is sometimes our victory is in how we die. So for some, it's in how we live, but for others, it's in how we die. In this second section, the apostle anonymously lists the sufferings of believers who did not make headline news. The believers referenced in verses 35 to 38 were used by God in a different way, but still a valuable way. Some of the author's readers might have been saying, well, yeah, that's great, uh, Mr. Apostle. Uh, you know, miracles are wonderful, but we're not seeing any miracles here where we are. And so all your examples of, you know, Noah and Abraham and, and these Moses, it doesn't really encourage us. We can't relate to that because all we're getting is negative, 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 suffer, dying, people leaving the faith. That's all we're getting over here. So, so how is living faith supposed to help us right here where we are as we suffer and die for the gospel with no miracles? To which the author, in essence, replies, you are not alone. Living faith has helped others get through what you're going through. And not everybody gets to see miracles. So in verse 35, he says, yeah, there." There are other believers that were tortured and they refused to accept release. Now, don't miss that. That is a key phrase. Man, I got that underlined in my Bible. Do not miss this. Here's what that means. It means that when pagan authorities tied the hands of a believer to one horse and their feet to another horse, it's called being courted by horses. And they would do this. This is just one of many torture methods that were used. And then the pagan authorities would say, as the believer is tied, hands to one horse, feet to another horse, hey, all this is going to end if you will just promise to stop talking about Jesus. Sign this document right here that says he was never God, and we'll let you go free. We'll set you free. This will be all over with. You go home and be with your family. Oh, but the author of Hebrews says they refused to accept release. Well, here's what that means. Don't miss this. Oh, don't miss this. It means that the unnamed believers said to those pagan authorities, go ahead and say giddy up. I'll even say it for you. Many of the martyrs throughout church history could have been released if they would have just renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. 
but they remembered what Jesus said during his ministry in Luke chapter 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory with the holy angels. In verses 36 and 37, these two verses appear to describe what happened to some of the better-known Old Testament prophets. Notice it says they were mocked and flogged, uh, even chains, and they were put in prison. Uh, Jeremiah experienced mocking and imprisonment from his own people that he was preaching to, asking them to repent and to come back to the Lord. Second Chronicles says that Zechariah was stoned to death. And Hebrew tradition states the same thing happened to Jeremiah. Both Zechariah and Jeremiah trying to be faithful to the Lord, preaching to the Lord's people to try and get them right with the Lord, stoned to death. Tradition also teaches that Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh. He goes on to say in verses 37 and 38, they went about in skins, destitute and afflicted and mistreated. The apostle now is mentioning others who were forced to give up a life of physical comfort and material wealth for the sake of the gospel. They, they in essence, lived on the run, moving from one cave to another, one desert to another, just trying to survive. but refusing to renounce their faith. Isn't it interesting? Do, 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 you notice, do you notice how they continually chose faithfulness to the Lord over comfort, and they continually chose faithfulness to the Lord over pleasing people? Isn't that just convicting? You want me to keep moving? Okay. That was in verse 38. Oh, another Holy Spirit-inspired truth bomb put it out on Twitter. Of whom the world was not worthy. <laughs> Don't miss this one either. Oh, what an ironic commendation for these believers. You see... As I said earlier, the world looks at suffering Christians as unworthy of respect, as losers. You're missing out, man. You're weak. But the apostle turns this thinking on its head and in essence says, no, 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 no. Suffering Christ followers are held in such high esteem by the Lord that you are not worthy of them. Did you see that? Wow. In fact, you're so unworthy of them, the Lord just took them home early because you don't deserve to have any more time with them. 
Another example, the world thinks they're winning when in fact they're losing. God's people are winning and not losing. Of whom the world was not worthy. So what is the author saying about faith here? If, if he was saying in the, the first section, the first set of verses, that, that, that faith can activate the power of God for miracles, what's he saying here? Well, I think what he's saying is faith can also activate the power of God for suffering. Faith can also activate the power of God for suffering. It's ironic that living faith not only provides the power to endure suffering, but don't miss this either. Sometimes living faith causes suffering. It may cause you to suffer. And the Lord says that's good. And this directly contradicts the false teaching of the prosperity gospel and word of faith movement, which sadly has even infiltrated some of some many churches that we would be in the same camp with. Uh, such heretical teaching basically says that a believer should use God instead of God using the believer. Prosperity teaching says that suffering proves a lack of faith instead of proving real faith. And that faith is a formula for material blessing and physical healing instead of obedience to God. It's everywhere. It's on the radio, it's on TV, it's on podcasts, in bookstores. According to God's inerrant word, when true believers suffer for the true gospel here on earth, it shows the world how Christ suffered for them. According to God's word, it's a great honor. And according to God's word, it builds character in the believer and it earns them the crown of life. The crown of life is an eternal reward, a special commendation, one of four or five crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament given out to believers who are bold with their faith and suffer for the faith. And they get to keep that crown for eternity. Living faith enables you to win when the world says you've lost. And in this second section, he's trying to tell us, hey, not everybody's going to see miracles. Some are going to suffer and die for the Lord. And that's good too. And living faith will help them endure. Let's look at the last two verses, verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here's number three on your outline. Our victory always comes, always comes from trusting God's promises. Our victory always comes from trusting God's promises. The apostle says in verse 39, though commended through their faith, there's that word again. You might remember from the beginning of this series, in, in the first few verses of chapter 11, that word commendation shows up. It's in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5. 
The dictionary defines to commend as to mention something as, uh, as being worthy of attention, to express approval or praise. Back in week one of this series, I, 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 I used uh, the illustration of a believer being commended is like a soldier being awarded the coveted Congressional Medal of Honor for distinguishing themselves in the field of battle at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty. It's that same language. Then verse 39, the author says, they didn't receive what was promised. This is referring to the Old Testament saints who heard the prophecies about a coming Messiah. They believed in the prophecies but they died before Jesus came to earth. They died before they saw the fulfillment of the prophecies about Jesus. Notice, though, it didn't cause the saints to abandon the faith. Instead, they simply reasoned that God had ordained to fulfill his promises about Jesus after their time on earth was done. Yeah, okay, Because God's always going to do what he says he's going to do. I guess I'm just not going to be around to see it. Here. I'll just see it from up there. I get a box seat. Different perspective. As I was studying for this message this week, I was thinking and uh, meditating on promises, because that's a theme here in this chapter, um, what God has promised. We, it comes up, if you would, just look back at verse 13. Um, earlier in the series, I mentioned this. Um, uh, the author stops in the middle of his list of Old Testament heroes, and he said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And so I was thinking about that, and I, and I, was, I was realizing that there are some problems that we have with promises. And I came up with three. So here's letters A, B, and C. The first is, we don't keep all of ours, but we expect God to keep all of his. Have you ever realized that? You see, the Lord has never once made a promise he forgot to keep, couldn't keep, was prevented from keeping, or never intended to keep. He can't do it because he has no sin within him. Now, us, on the other hand, unlike the Lord, we make promises we forget to keep, we can't keep, are prevented from keeping, or never intended to keep. But despite this, most of us, if we were honest, and this is church, we've got to be honest, right? We have at one time or another shaken our fist at heaven and yelled at God, but God, you promised. All the while overlooking the fact that there's a laundry list of promises that I forgot to keep, couldn't keep, never intend to keep, or is prevented from keeping, because I'm not God. I'm so thankful for Paul's observation in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, where Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
Isn't that good news? Don't you? Oh, pray. amen, right? So we don't keep all ours, but we expect God to keep all his. So just keep that in mind the next time you're mad at God for not delivering on a promise on your timetable. Next, letter B. We expect God to keep promises he never made. And I think one of the main causes for this is that poor Bible study methods lead to bad theology, and bad theology always leads to disappointment in the Lord. This is one of the reasons I teach the way I do, uh, providing you with an outline to take notes, and sometimes I explain how I went about interpreting the text. I drop little... uh, it's called hermeneutics in seminary, but I drop little interpretation methods and tell you what observations I'm making or how I came to the interpretation, and then I share the application because I want you to get into the habit of every time I open God's Word, I never leave without knowing what I'm supposed to do with it. I do all that on purpose in hopes that you will develop strong Bible study methods yourself so that you can do good theology and have a growing faith. So all this, keynote presentations, blanks to fill in, outline, I do it all on purpose. And that's just one of several reasons. More on that another time. So we expect God to keep promises he never made. One of the ways to fix that problem is to learn what Promises apply to you, and which ones don't. And that comes from learning good Bible study methods. Letter C, we expect God to keep promises in our timing. I mean, they're his promises, but boy, he better come through when I want him to. So because we are finite, selfish sinners, we are often impatient when waiting for God to fulfill his promises in our lives. But we do this because also we forget that the Lord, to him, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So he doesn't see time the way we do. Also, we forget that the Lord didn't send Jesus into Mary's womb until the fullness of time had come. And and the Lord didn't do that until after 400 years of silence had taken place. It's called the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Thus, what it means is that he ordained the perfect time to send Jesus into Mary's womb. And in the same way, he ordains, and I don't like that he does this. I know I totally agree with you. But he ordains the perfect time, and it's a time exponentially better than ours, to fulfill his promises. I know I wish we could change that about him. He's God and we're not. I never said I liked it. It's true. At least you don't have to be up here saying this stuff. You know it's true, but you don't like it. It's kind of hard. So he will always be victorious We will always be victorious, excuse me, when we trust in God's promises. Okay, applications. 
speaking of applications. What do we do with this? Because God's word was written not just to inform us, but to transform us. How do, what, do we, what are we supposed to take away from these last few verses? Here's the first of two applications that comes to mind. Again, the, the Holy Spirit may give you another uh, that applies specifically to you, but here's, here's one that I thought of, and that is embrace the Lord's definition of success and reject the world's. I kept asking myself as I was writing this message, what would be a good starting application? What would be the base level root baby step application? And that is, I think when we're talking about victory, and we're talking about what does a win look like when you're living by faith, the first thing we got to do is we got to embrace the Lord's definition of success and we got to reject the world's. That means that living a victorious life in the Lord's eyes has nothing to do with being physically attractive, healthy, financially secure, relationally accepted, emotionally fulfilled, eternally comfortable. It has nothing to do with any of that. You can sum up the Lord's definition of success with just one word. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. So we're, we're, the, we're the believers in the first section we looked at who got to see miracles happen. Were they faithful? Yeah, yeah, they got to see miracles. They, they're faithful. What about the ones in the second section who were torn to pieces, thrown in prison, flogged? Were, were they faithful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't want their life. I want the miracle life. <laughs> Yeah, but both were faithful, but the Lord used them a different way. So not everybody's going to get a bunch of miracles, and not everybody's going to suffer and die and be flogged and torn in two. This means, though, and we've got to make sure we don't miss this, because, again, this is not talked about in a lot of American churches. It's definitely not talked about in prosperity churches. It means that in God's eyes, suffering for the gospel is better than being successful in the world's eyes. I'm going to say that again. Because you didn't write it down the first time. It means that in God's eyes, suffering for the gospel is better than being successful in the world's eyes. Yeah, but I still like being successful in the world's eyes. Well, okay. Um... That means for eternity, forever, you're going to be regretting that you got no eternal rewards and that you didn't do more for the Lord in the 70 years, 75 years you got here. So embrace the Lord's definition of success and reject the world's. This means that victorious faithfulness to the Lord will look different in your life than it does mine and vice versa. Thus, our second application, at least the second one I came up with, is embrace the victorious life to which God has called you. You see, because if the Lord's definition of success is boiled down to one word, faithfulness, well then, 
embrace the victorious life he's called you to. So as, as we saw in this passage, the Lord used some people to display his miraculous power, and he used others to suffer for his name. The ones that suffered for his name also preached the gospel through their suffering because it caused the world to go, man, they must really believe this message about Jesus and who he is and what he did because they're willing to die for it. You see, the gospel loses credibility if, if professing Christians cower under pressure and go, eh, okay, I'll, I'll renounce my faith so I can get out of jail and go back home and be with my family and keep my house and my job and live a good life. That tells the world that, well, the gospel wasn't real, wasn't legit. Most of us, as I said earlier, would choose the miraculous power version as opposed to the suffering for his name version. But we don't get to choose, do we? It'd be nice, but we don't get to choose. So one secret to embracing what God has called you to is living with an eternal perspective. You've heard me use that phrase before, I know, but believers who live with an eternal perspective realize that this life on earth is temporary while their life in heaven is eternal, it's forever. Or another way to say it is, I'm going to be with Jesus longer than I'm going to be here. So, believers that have an eternal perspective strive to make this life count for the kingdom because the Lord has promised to make it worth their while in eternity. And if you don't strive on earth to make your life for Christ count, you're saying, I don't believe what God said he will do for me in eternity. I don't believe him. That's what you're saying. So embrace the victorious life to which God has called you. If he's called you to suffer, embrace it and display his power by being able to endure it. And if he uses you to do miracles or does miracles in your life, make sure he gets all the credit and use it to praise and glorify him and spread the gospel as well. The events that took place on April 20th, 1999 in a suburb of Denver, Colorado are still so fresh in the memories of Americans that only one word needs to be uttered to bring those memories back to the front of our minds again. And that one word is Columbine. It's hard to believe that this spring this coming week, actually, marks 20 years since Columbine High School students Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold walked into their school and murdered 12 classmates and a teacher. The massacre sent shockwaves through our country, caused law enforcement agencies to change their active shooter tactics forced schools to increase their security measures and protocols. And sadly, it inspired a number of copycats. According to eyewitness reports, the shooters were asking students if they believed in God before executing them. One such student, who happened to be their first victim, 
was 17-year-old Rachel Joy Scott. After being asked by the gunmen about her faith, they shot and killed her outside on the school's lawn where she was eating lunch with a friend. Rachel was not only a passionate follower of Christ, she was also a prolific writer. And after her death, her journals were published by her parents along with a few letters that they had found. In one letter written to a friend exactly one year prior, on the same day of the Columbine Massacre, Rachel explained how the cost of following Jesus was impacting her life. She writes, I have lost all of my friends at school. Now that I have begun to walk my talk, they make fun of me. But you know what? It's all worth it to me. I'm not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus, and I'm not going to hide the light that God put in me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. April 20th, 1998. What courage! What, what insight! What faith she had! Rachel had an eternal perspective, didn't she? How about you? Is your perspective eternal like hers was? You see, here's, I know our sin nature does this. We read a passage like this. We hear stories about martyrs who suffered. And in America, we rationalize as, well, that will never happen to me because I'm not like some missionary in China or something like that. Well, you know what? Rachel didn't get up that day of April 20th, 1999, thinking, I'm going to become a martyr for the faith today. She had no clue that something was going to happen at her school that had never happened before on this scale in an American high school. Therefore, it thus makes the probability of you having a split-second decision to make of whether you are going to be a martyr for the Lord much more likely. What if a shooter comes into your place of work tomorrow and hates Christians and goes around and starts asking questions? What will you say? So be careful that you don't dismiss martyrdom and suffering for the gospel, thinking, well, it'll never happen to me. Did you notice that things are changing in our country where it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian politically, socially? The day is coming, and it may be in our lifetime. We're professing evangelical Christians are going to suffer in America, maybe even be jailed. So even though it was a tragedy to see Rachel's life taken too soon, her death became a blessing to thousands of teens who got to hear about her bold faith. And that's what happens when someone repents of their sin, trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, and then they live out their faith. 
the Lord uses them to do something more with their life than they could have done without him. They go from having a meaningless, directionless, no-impact life to one that has purpose and one that impacts others. Sometimes the Christian life can leave you feeling like a loser. And everyone else in the world believes that you've lost the game. When in reality, you just haven't won yet. That's why living faith enables you to win when the world says you've lost. Rachel won. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, once again, reading the undiluted, simple text of Scripture is convicting. It's uncomfortable. But it's also hopeful. Lord, we we thank you for those that have suffered for the gospel and for the church so that we could enjoy the benefits of your church today. Thank you, Lord, for those who endured great physical pain, went to prison, and were even martyred to keep the gospel message alive and the church flourishing. Lord, would you help us as a church to be faithful like they were? Would you help us, Lord, to be faithful in that no matter what happens in our community, in our nation, in our lives, that we make it possible as Vanguard Bible Church for another generation to love you and worship you. And maybe... If it be your will, they talk about us someday. Lord, we thank you for Rachel, Scott, her boldness and confidence is so convicting coming from a 17-year-old. Lord, please, would you help some of our teens to to have that kind of boldness? And Lord, especially, would you help us grown-ups find it again? Finally, Lord, would you show us personally, individually, any areas of our lives where we are not exercising living faith? Would you show us, Lord, where we need to show and demonstrate living faith so that we can have a life that pleases you? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.